Welcome. You are listening to the Conservation Stories Podcast, connecting listeners to nature through inspirational personal narratives from diverse voices in conservation. This is Robert Rose, and I'm a conservation geographer and the executive director of the Institute for Integrative Conservation at William and Mary. And this is John Swaddle, faculty director at the Institute for Integrative Conservation. We're coming to you today from the campus of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. This season explores stories of Virginia's Pamunkey tribe, highlighting the past, present, and future of their relationship with local and cultural resources. My name is Anna Kashmanian, and I'm your host for the first season of the Conservation Stories podcast. The American Shad once sustained human populations across the United States' eastern coasts, but today there are hardly any left. On today's episode, we'll learn how the disappearance of this fish has left scientists puzzled while exploring all the ways Virginia's Pamunkey tribe is trying to bring them back. Today, around 80 people live on the Pamunkey Reservation. The 1,200-acre reservation, which is largely comprised of wetlands, is surrounded by the beautiful Pamunkey River. And despite the many challenges the tribe has faced, their ability to persist on their ancestral land is a testament to their perseverance. I mean, the land in and of itself, our ability to like be here and live on this piece of land that has been home to our ancestors for tens of thousands of years, that to me is tradition. That's Dr. Ashley Spivey. Spivey earned her PhD in anthropology from William & Mary and is a member of the Pamunkey tribe. Although Spivey and several generations of her family live on the tribe's reservation, where the tribe has its own governing system, things have undeniably changed for the Pamunkey people. And one thing that's changed drastically over just the last 100 years is the role one particular fish plays in the Pamunkey tribe's culture, economy, and diet, the American Shad. American Shad are a shiny, silver-colored fish, accented by translucent blues, greens, and pinks. They are an anadromous species of fish, which means they hatch in rivers and streams and migrate to the ocean where they spend most of their adult lives, returning to their natal stream only to spawn. Their favorite foods include plankton, crustacean, and small fish. Fully matured, shad are typically 20 to 24 inches long, and historically, scores of these shimmering fish inundated the Chesapeake Bay each spring to spawn. And the schools that came up those river systems and the creeks were just phenomenally there was a solid wall of fish from as far as you can see just swimming up almost you can see waves there's stories of waves of being pushed ahead of the, of the run of fish coming up there's that many fish going into these creeks that's dr troy tucky a scientist at the virginia institute of marine science tucky studies population dynamics of fish species including shad i spoke with him to learn more about american shad and how this species historically sustained people such as the pamunkey tribe there were lots of them, so it was easy to capture, and it was after you pretty much exhausted the stores that you had put up and saved in the fall. This timing, Tucky notes, made shad a particularly crucial and reliable source of protein for tribes living along the East Coast. And in addition to providing an important source of food for people like the Pamunkey tribe, the American shad also plays a big role in the Chesapeake Bay ecosystem. The shad fills an important niche in the Chesapeake Bay. Across the East Coast, the American shad is a key part of the diet for a wide variety of animals, including dolphins, birds, several species of larger fish, and bears. 
Because of their annual migration from the oceans to their riverine spawning grounds, the American Shad also lends a hand in nutrient cycling between these two ecosystems. The Shad matures in the ocean, consuming all the zooplankton and insect larvae they can find, and when they return to the rivers, they bring all those nutrients with them, infusing the river with a burst of productivity. Lastly, the American Shad also serves as a taxi for certain species of invertebrates, such as mussels. When the mussels spawn, they have a larval stage that swims up and attaches to the gills of American Shad. American Shad carry those larvae up way upriver, and then they drop off, the mussel larvae drop off, land in sediments and metamorphose and grow into a mussel way upriver where they could never have gotten to. This taxi service helps the filter feeding mussels access faraway regions of rivers that they would otherwise not be able to swim to, allowing them to filter out more particles and contaminants. The American Shad's role in this mechanism may be part of the reason why decreased water quality is associated with the decline in shad populations, Tucky notes. Unfortunately, American Shad population numbers across the East Coast have plummeted over the last 100 years. While shad once flooded the bay's rivers in early spring, there are now barely any to catch. So what happened to the shad population in Tidewater, Virginia? It's a complicated and ongoing story, but we do have some clues. Tucky explains that commercial overfishing may have played a large role in their initial decline. We used to put in staked gill nets, so you drive tree piles, basically, perpendicular to the river and tie up nets between them. And so the shad are swimming upstream to head to their spawning grounds and they just get tangled in the gill net. And so we had those staggered all the way up the entire rivers, James, York, Rappahannock, throughout the Bay of Potomac. I mean, it was amazing that they're still around as much effort as we put into taking them out of the water. And for the lucky few that made it past the obstacle course of commercial gill nets, the conditions awaiting them upriver had been significantly modified, making it difficult for their young to grow. However, restoring shad populations has not been as simple as removing the gill nets. Conditions in the Bay Area have changed dramatically since pre-colonial times, making it unlikely that we'll ever see pre-colonial American shad numbers again. In 1994, a moratorium on shad fishing was put into effect, meaning that no recreational and commercial shad fishing could take place. But unfortunately, this did not bring back the shad like fishermen had hoped. This has led scientists like Tucky to be particularly concerned about the impact of habitat modification on the shad. The Chesapeake Bay region has seen extensive development in recent years, including construction of roads, dams, and poorly planned urban sprawl. According to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, by the late 1800s, 40-50% to 50 of the region's forest had been cleared, and between 1982 and 1997, the Bay Watershed lost about 100 acres of forest land development each day. That's 750,000 acres of forest destroyed in just 15 years. Today, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation estimates that there are 18 million people residing within the Chesapeake Bay Watershed. That number is expected to reach 19.4 million by 2025, spelling trouble for the bay's ecosystems and many species. In addition to chemical contamination, air pollution, and habitat degradation caused by development, Tucky warns of the impact of an invisible offender, noise. Increased levels of noisy activity along the shad spawning rivers from construction projects and industrial activity seem to be scaring off the fish, preventing them from spawning. Tucky notes that shad are especially sensitive to sound. They can hear underwater very well compared to other fishes. They have specialized bone structures that allow them to hear. 
when they hear sounds that are surprising and things, that sort of gives them a startle response and they may just turn around and leave and not spawn. Although the mechanisms causing the American Shad's decline are complex, one message is clear. This is a direct consequence of human action. Their decline is directly related to our actions. So it's not like they're just, you know, sort of an evolutionary oddity that's sort of passing away. Um, it's, it's we've dammed up their rivers that they would go into. We've changed habitats so they don't have a place to spawn or grow. We overfished them for decades. Um, so it's one of those, we made this the problem, we, sh we should fix it. The drastic decline in the numbers of American Shad has had significant impacts on the Pamunkey tribe, whose way of life was once closely tied with this shiny fish. Throughout much of the 17 and 1800s, Pamunkey fishermen traveled up to six months a year following the shad runs and selling their catch along the way. Spive explains that Pamunkey boys would travel with their fathers to learn the ropes of shad fishing. When they got older, when they were like teenager and young adults, they would actually, some of them would travel, travel with their fathers, you know, from Florida all the way up to New York to follow the shad runs. So now that shad numbers have plummeted, it is impossible for Pamunkey fishermen to make a living by catching and selling shad as they once did. These changes have had major impacts on the Pamunkey, including the disruption of traditional transmission of knowledge from older to younger generations. The typical way that you know, knowledge about fishing would be passed down would be from father to son, right? So the boys, the young, you know, young Pamunkey boys were brought out into the boat with their dads at really early ages, even some as young as six years old, <laughs> to go and learn how to fish um, and to also kind of help their parents, uh, their, their dads, uh, with the process. Spivey explains that because there are fewer shad to catch, teaching young Pamunkey boys how to fish for them is no longer essential to the community's survival. That, that generational kind of passing of knowledge is when it comes to shad fishing, you know, no longer is taking place today. You know, and a lot of that has to do with um, the market just not being what it was, you know, 100, even 50 years ago. And because Pamunkey boys are no longer learning to catch shad in the traditional way, the Pamunkey diet and relationship to shad is changing. When Spivey's grandfather and great-grandparents were growing up, Members of the Pamunkey tribe would salt and preserve the fish so they could eat shad all year round. But today, there isn't enough shad being caught to continue this tradition. It's not a part of the diet like it was, where it was like this kind of everyday thing that you consumed. Now it's more of a seasonal thing. As it turns out, shad has a very strong, fishy taste. And while older members of the tribe are accustomed to its flavor and the work that goes into preparing the fish, now that it is no longer a staple of the Pamunkey's diet, this affinity for shad is not being passed on to the next generation. Like, a lot of younger folks don't like shad, <laughs> that, at least that I've seen. And that's just because, again, it's not something that they were, they, are, they were exposed to consistently or constantly. Because the American shad historically sustained the Pamunkey tribe, they have played an active role in shad restoration efforts. When Pamunkey fishermen noticed shad numbers dipping in the late 1800s, they started manually fertilizing shad eggs in their boats to give the fish an extra chance at life. Spivey describes this practice. So basically they would milk the sperm from the, the buck shad into the bucket with the eggs. They would stir the bucket and almost immediately you could see that the eggs would get fertilized. They would get thicker, larger, um, plumper. And once that happened, they would release the eggs back into the river. 
As the population kept declining into the 1900s, it became clear something more needed to be done. So in 1918, with funding support from the Commonwealth of Virginia, the Pamunkey tribe opened a shad hatchery on the reservation. When the hatchery first opened its doors in 1918, it contained modest infrastructure, including an 800-gallon holding tank, motor, and hatching jars. So they basically took that process that they would do manually in their boats and mechanized it here on the reservation in 1918. That's the date that the hatchery was established. It literally was just a gas motor where they would do what they did in the boats on a larger scale uh, with moving the water uh, with the gas, the gas motor and fertilizing the eggs. Once the eggs hatched, they were fed back into the Pamunkey River where they would grow into adults. Since the hatchery's inception, it has gone through several expansions and technological upgrades. It was even completely rebuilt in 1989, making way for additional holding capacity and a shad tagging program to track their survival rate after leaving the hatchery. And until recently, the Commonwealth of Virginia funded the hatchery, but in the year 2014, they suddenly pulled funding. This was very disappointing for the Pamunkey tribe. It wasn't a ton of money to begin with, but it helped. You know, they would use that money to purchase supplies and pay the fishermen for their time, right, and for their catch. And at that time, that was really the only source of funding that they had coming in for the hatchery. But I think it's unfortunate. I think that the state closed out something that they could have actually, instead of taking the money away, maybe invested more in. As it turns out, the hatchery state funding was cut at an interesting time. The Pamunkey tribe, in addition to the nearby Mattapanai tribe, was actually concurrently dealing with a treaty infringement issue. I don't think it was a mistake that they cut the funding when they did, because it was right at a time when they were trying to tell us that we can't, um, that we have to follow the same laws as, as the rest of, you know, Virginia fishermen, when that's not really what our treaty states. The Virginia Marine Resources Commission and the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries sent law enforcement officers to the tribe's reservations to enforce an opinion issued by the then Attorney General Kenneth Cuccinelli in 2013. The opinion, which stated that tribal members needed permits to hunt and fish in Virginia, directly conflicted with the Pamunkey tribe's treaty with the state. Our treaty, our 1677 treaty, um, that was renegotiated in 1680, explicitly states that we have the right to hunt, fish, and gather in the state of Virginia. And it's not relegated to just our, you know, our reservation, right, or Indian territory. We have the right to do that uh, throughout the state because um, that's, how, that's how we survived. And that's certainly not the only time issues of treaty infringement have arisen for the Pamunkey tribe. The state gets amnesia every every decade or so, because literally since around 1900, every decade we have had to reconvince uh, state officials and, and uh, the leadership that we have the right to do this. <laughs> so, and we've been successful every time in, in doing that and eventually like being able to, to demonstrate like, yes, we have the right to do these things. But it's just obviously you can imagine that it's frustrating for our people. Today, the hatchery is housed in a small, gray building located on the Pamunkey River, next to the original 1918 hatchery's lot. The hatchery supports several large, 500-gallon holding tanks, an upgraded plumbing system, and the ability to support the young shad for 16 days. 
and come springtime, the young shad are released back into the Pamunkey River. In our next episode, we'll discuss how changes in the Pamunkey tribe's access to American shad, as well as the looming impacts of climate change, contribute to ongoing questions regarding tribal identity and resource management, both on and beyond the reservation. We would like to thank our contributors and guests, Ashley Spivey, Troy Tucky, and Elizabeth Armistead Andrews for making this season possible. And a special thank you to you, our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. This episode of the Conservation Stories podcast is produced by Dorothy Ebus and Anna Kashmanian for the William & Mary Institute for Integrative Conservation. To learn more about the IIC, this podcast, or conservation at William & Mary, please visit our website at wm.edu slash conservation or email us at iic at wm.edu. We look forward to hearing from you soon.